Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to AOA. Thanks again for joining us and making us part of your day. We appreciate it. Here's what we're going to be talking about. We'll talk markets with Todd Holtman, DTN lead analyst. We're going to talk about the packing industry with Steve Meyer, economist for Partners for Production Agriculture. And we've been talking a lot about uh, the drought in the Western Plains. We're going to talk with North Dakota farmer Kevin Skunas, past president of the National Corn Growers Association. We'll get a crop update from his farm and what conditions are like. And we're going to start things off, though, with a look at the news, but we're going to go back to the state of North Dakota right off the bat. That's where Jerry Hagstrom is today with the Hagstrom Report. Jerry, thanks for joining us. You're doing a little traveling, huh? Yes, well, I came home for a high school reunion and to visit my family farm north of Bismarck. So I'm here in dry, hot North Dakota. Yeah, that's we'll be talking more about that later on. It's just been a tough go for the folks in the western part of the Corn Belt, and uh, you're seeing that firsthand, aren't you? Uh, yes, I am. Although people who've traveled from Montana say that it's worse in Montana than it is here, uh, I'd say that the wheat looks incredibly short and rather thin. Uh, the soybeans, which came up later, look better, but they're about to be hit by a week of almost 100-degree weather, so I'm sure they will suffer rather than uh, grow during this period. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be any relief in sight. Uh, let's look at what's going on back in Washington, D.C. Uh, are we going to start seeing some votes on the infrastructure bill? Well, yes, there is supposed to be a vote today on ending the, on the well, sort of setting the rules for debate. Uh, but it, we don't know how it's going to go. The Republicans are threatening to filibuster it. This is the one in which they need 60 votes. Uh, but the bill isn't in text form yet, so the Republicans have a case for not, uh, not voting for this. However, the real purpose of it seems to be to push the, the uh, Senate to, uh, to work on the bill. Uh, that's what uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said. Uh, so it may, uh, uh, you know, something may, uh, something may happen in the next couple of weeks. The Senate's scheduled to be in session until August 7th, and so that's sort of the first deadline for getting something done. Now here's another one we're watching, because while these spending bills are being proposed, we're also looking at the pay-fors. Uh, there's a proposal now, some Senate Democrats proposing a tariff on carbon-intensive imports, and they say this uh, would help raise money and also um, could uh, deal with the climate issue. But there also there are those saying that this would raise farm production costs in this country. So what are you hearing on this? Does this have much support? Uh, I think it would be very hard to get this through partly because it could lead to uh, uh, tariffs, uh, other countries imposing tariffs on American products. Uh, but it's an, it's an idea out there. Of course, we're, you know, we've been making billions on our tariffs from China. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's impossible, uh, but I'd say it's, uh, I'd say it's unlikely. We'll, we'll just have to see how this goes in the next few weeks. 
Yeah, we're going to be hearing more about this. I think a carbon border tax. We'll watch that. Meanwhile, the administration is saying uh, the already delayed announcement on RVO levels for the RFS uh, will be delayed even more. And this is, I, I have trouble with this one, uh, uh, understanding this one, Jerry, because this administration is obviously trying to do as many things opposite of what the Trump administration did as they possibly can. But it looks like they're going down the same rabbit hole here. Uh, if you're if you're looking for this elusive way to make both sides happy, the oil industry and the biofuels industry, well, good luck to them. No one has found that uh, that path yet, and now the, this administration seems to want to try to go down that that same uh, path again. Uh, indeed, indeed, it shows the 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 most basic problem in the in the ethanol industry. And uh, with this administration, the issue is that President Biden made promises to the farmers, particularly in Iowa. But at the same time, he's got a re, uh, an oil refinery in Delaware that doesn't like uh, the ethanol mandate. And so the senator, apparently the senators from Delaware have been putting pressure on Biden. And so we're back to where we were before. And that's at the same time we've had these court rulings that are negative for for ethanol uh now you said the administration says they're slowing it down uh no one's gone on the record saying that yet but reuters uh, uh quoted sources telling uh, telling its readers that's what that is what's happening but what we do know for sure it's already overdue we're waiting for the levels for yeah. 21 and we're we're more than halfway into the year Indeed, indeed, it is. It's it is way uh, way overdue, um, uh, and I you know I just don't see I don't see any any schedule on this. Uh, the only thing the ethanol industry can do is try to keep the pressure on. Yeah, and uh, they will certainly try to do that. But so much of this is going to fall back into the lap of EPA, and you're you're looking at trusting or uh, having faith in an administration that basically has committed moving towards electric vehicles. And so you wonder how much support is there going to be for any anyone with liquid fuels? Well, that's true. Although the ethanol industry uh, and even uh, EPA Administrator Michael Regan do make the case that they believe that ethanol is better for the environment than, than what you might call pure gasoline. Yep. So there's uh, there's uh, there's uh, there's some support there. The problem is just trying to deal with these two industries that have competing uh, competing views. Yep. We'll see if they can if they can do it. If somebody finds that that uh, perfect spot that makes both sides happy, they ought to get a Nobel Peace Prize. Right. Uh, speaking of making both sides happy, the big issue today in Washington in agriculture is this hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee on uh, farm labor and immigration mm -hmm. policy. Uh, we're going, uh, Secretary Vilsack is testifying, and I'll be very interested to see whether he says that the Senate should try to put farm, uh, farm worker provisions on immigration into this reconciliation bill that would only require Democratic votes. That's being proposed. But nobody knows if the Senate parliamentarian would would say that, that this is germane to the bill. Uh, they, uh, in general, those things are not are not allowed. But 
the advocates for this want to declare these workers essential workers and say, therefore, it can be in a budget bill. Yeah, we'll wait and see on that. That's another one that uh, uh, it's been very elusive trying to find the right answer on this one because it gets caught up in the broader immigration debate instead they just don't seem to be able to just focus on the ag labor part of it and get that addressed but we'll have much more on that coming up tomorrow watch that one closely jerry enjoy your time in north dakota and we'll talk again soon thank you i'll be back in washington tonight and and be following what's going on there okay we'll stay in touch thank you jerry hagstrom with the hagstrom report all right Uh, There's been a lot of discussion, of course, and proposals concerning the packing industry. We're going to talk about that with Steve Meyer with Partners for Production Agriculture, next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you, and we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. So join us for Around the Table every Tuesday, or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, for the second month in a row, the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer declined, falling 21 points below a month earlier and the weakest sentiment reading since July of 2020. Here to talk about it is Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langmeyer. Michael, what's your takeaway from this? The index of current conditions and the index of future expectations fell but the index of current conditions fell much more steeply. And we think one of the reasons why the index fell so hard is if if you look at when we surveyed people in mid-May and then uh, the week of June 21st to 25th, both corn and soybean futures price fell dramatically. If you look at the the soybean futures, we saw a drop of about $2.50, very large drop from mid-May to mid-June. There's the nearby corn futures dropped about 80 cents. And so even though the prices are still relatively strong, certainly those prices are weaker. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. 
So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, so there's been a lot of discussion and several proposals on how to address uh, increasing packing capacity in this country, meat packing capacity, and also to address uh, concentration in the ag industry. And we know about the proposals, USDA, going big announcement, going to fund small, a small processing plant and wanting to do more of that. I want to get some thoughts on this from Steve Meyer, who joins us now. Steve, an economist with Partners for Production Agriculture. Steve, thank you for being with us. You have told us before you're not uh, necessarily convinced that the uh, Increasing the small packers is a way to address the overall issue. Give me, give us again your thoughts on this. Mike, my biggest concern about that is that there are significant economies of scale in, in meat packing, whether it be the hogs, cattle, you know, chickens, whatever. And there's a reason these plants are big, and uh, that's because that's the least cost uh, method of operations. Uh, it gives them flexibility in marketing, having a large amount of different kinds of products. Uh, that's one of the problems that some of the Canadian packers run into is that if they have a retailer wants to run a feature, they can't even supply enough product for it, and our plants can. Um, so <clears throat> so if you go out and you throw money at, um, at small plants, um, I'm afraid that's going to be a waste of taxpayer dollars and it's not going to make any difference. And uh, that's my concern in the long run. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of other answers. Uh, I have to admit, you know, uh, Milton Friedman said you don't get to criticize unless you offer a solution. So I guess I'm, I'm a little bit short on that. But uh, I still think that uh, we have to have economically competitive plants out there if we think that they're going to last in the long run and be available when we have these crunches. The other one is, is you know, um, that crunch last year was severe, and it, it was a one-off. I, I, you know, I, I doubt that we'll ever see another one of those in our lifetime. Uh, but still, uh, you know, this whole deal of tight capacity is an issue. Um, you know, when I studied competition theory and, and industrial organization at Iowa State back in the 80s, you know, I don't ever remember throwing a constraint in the marketing system in the middle of this and saying, oh, gee, how does that affect uh, antitrust or, or monopoly behavior or those kinds of things? I, I don't think I, I ever studied it. Maybe maybe smarter people did. Uh, but I think that's a real complicating factor here. And, you know, the talk in the beef industry is, well, we need to break up the big packers' concentrations too high. Well, you break them all up and you don't create any capacity. In fact, you probably create a few inefficiencies that will reduce capacity. And I think capacity is the problem. And the beef industry is in a, in, a, in a much tighter pickle because of their long cycle. I mean, you know, they get in a position where they don't have any capacity and start building it. And by the time they get plants up, which they've got about 7,000 a day uh, plants that are going to be, you know, in some stage of, of construction or, or planting at the present time, uh, that's a pretty good chunk. But by the time they get up and running, there won't be enough cattle to feed them. Uh, we're in a little better shape because our cycle is shorter. 
but uh, it's it's a quandary, and, and it's something that I guess, like I say, I've been trying to think about and come up with a really good solution. I haven't come up with one yet, but I don't think throwing money at small plants is really the best thing. I, I'd be surprised, you know, three, four, or five years from now, there'll be most of those plants will be on at least their second owner. Would be my guess. Let me, let me throw out a hypothetical. I I can't imagine this happening, but if you had a a scenario where uh, you broke up the the concentration of the two or three biggest packers, those companies, and if you replace that same capacity with a lot of smaller, more independent facilities, if if that was possible to do, and you created that environment, would we be better off? As many people feel we would be than where we're at right now. Mm, um, in the short run, maybe. Um, uh, I, I could see that happening. The problem is, is in the long run, uh, large plants can do can perform those services at lower cost than small plants. Now, if the small plants are really good at marketing and cr- can capture premiums in the marketplace, then they can they can survive in that environment. But that's that's the caveat. They have to be able to capture their added cost in the long run. And again, there's a reason these plants are big. It's because they are more cost efficient than small plants. Now, again, if they can add value, and we're in a better consumer environment for for that now than we were back in the 80s or 70s when we were consolidating all these small plants. I live in Oklahoma. At one time, there were seven small packing plants in Oklahoma, right? They were all gone by the end of the 1970s. And the reason was they couldn't compete with the big guys. So, uh, you know, this consumer environment allows us to do some premium pricing on that. But the problem is everybody always looks at premium priced bacon or premium priced ham and forgets that they still got to sell a butt, a picnic, a belly, and some spare ribs at the, at the commodity price. And if you're not a really good marketer, you may have to sell it at less than commodity price, which is what some of our attempts at small plants in the past have discovered. So, um, I, I'm not I'm not optimistic for the long run survival of that and the long run benefit. Talking with Steve Meyer, economist for Partners for Production Agriculture. You know the USDA announced 500 million. That's a lot of money, obviously, <clears throat> to all to most of us. But that's you know that's going to go pretty quickly, right? And and my first thought too is what you said: is that going to be enough? You may get it started but can it sustain itself moving forward and are you have to go back and try to keep it going those are questions i guess will will only time will tell well yeah i, I mean you're right 500 million sounds like a whole lot of money to my speed uh it's not very much money from a government standpoint and it really isn't very much from a packing plant standpoint um you know the the prestige plant in iowa cost that roughly uh three years ago okay so you break that up, and yeah, it can go a little farther, but uh, you're still talking some big dollars. I, Mike, I think what will happen is these plants will get built. Um, uh, some of them will be successful in their per- present form, but the second or third owner is going to buy them cheap enough to probably make them go. So in that vein, we might get some some help out of this from a capacity and a, a bit of flexibility. I don't know why the government thinks that small plants won't have coronavirus problems just like big plants will. All right. I mean, you know, it's just silly to think if that's the kind of thing you're trying to insure against, that these small ones will somehow survive and the big ones won't. I, I don't think that can it will happen. Uh, you lose 
10 workers out of a small workforce, and that's worse than losing 10 out of a big workforce. So, uh, but those second and third owners, you know, kind of like hotels, it's always been said that the second or third owner of a hotel does pretty well. Um, that, that might be where we gain something in the long run, but it, it will be a pretty painful process uh, in, in the meantime. Now we move to another critical issue, and it's it's being it's in the news again today, and it continues to be a huge issue, and that is ag labor, uh, labor on the farm, and labor in these packing plants. That's that's a huge issue moving forward. Something's got to be done to address that. Well, I agree, and and let's let's say I decide I'm going to build a small plant in Oklahoma right now. Uh, I'm going to be facing the same labor problems that a big plant is facing. You might be a little better positioned just from an ideals or ideology standpoint, but this labor situation is a problem just about everywhere. And, and where it's kind of coming to roost on the meat side is, in general, we're getting the animals harvested. We're just not getting them captured, the full value captured through the plants because there isn't enough labor to do the boning. There isn't enough labor to capture offalls. Uh, you know, there's a number of places where we're leaving money on the table because of this, and and in some places, uh, it's caused some operational issues. So, um, yeah, we, we need a solution to this. And the only real solution, in my opinion, is uh, a, a coherent, long-term immigration policy that allows workers to come to the United States and work year-round, not just seasonal like the program is for now, but year-round and has some pathway to citizenship. I mean, uh, I, you know, we we all need to remember that you know unless we're Native American, we're all the children of immigrants, and um, uh, all of a sudden we kind of forget that it seems like in these discussions, and um, I think we need that. Secondly, I'm still in the camp that you know we need to make sure that folks are properly incentivized to work, and right now there's a lot of disincentives to work, and I understand there are some folks that still need some help out of this deal, but. Uh, uh, I think that there's a lot of help wanted signs up in Stillwater and all of rural America, and um, you know, being able to get by with government money is probably one reason that they're they're not being filled. Steve, always good to talk with you and get your perspective. Appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, you bet, Mike. Thank you. Take care, Steve Meyer, economist for Partners for production agriculture up next we're going to talk markets with todd holtman dtn lead analyst as we continue to watch these weather patterns kind of just settle in more of the same dry in some places very wet in others some good places in the middle but overall questions about crop production markets reacting we'll talk it over with todd holtman next here on aoa Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast, called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. 
From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rawl. We have seen some big price moves over the last two days. This has been largely an uncertainty surrounding key ag marketing areas. The market in tightest supply is spring wheat. Tuesday, traders closed Minneapolis wheat lower for the first time in several days. Traders talk about the spring wheat crop as a record loss and compare it to 1988, that according to Roach Egg Marketing. On the Board of Trade this morning, September corn trading two cents higher at 573 and three quarters. The December contract up three at 5.68 and a half cent for soybeans the August contract trading 3 cents lower at 14.40 and a half cent the September contract down a half cent at 13.98 and a half cent for wheat Chicago wheat September up 4 and a fraction at 7.04 and 3 quarters Kansas City wheat September up 4 and a half cent at 6.64 and 3 quarters Minneapolis spring wheat September down 11 and a half cent at 9.04 and a half cent the December contract down 8 cents at 8.96 and a fraction of a cent the the cattle complex was under some pressure due to high grain prices Tuesday. There were a few cattle traded at steady money with last week, but packers seem to be resisting feedlot asking prices. Asking prices are around $120 plus in the south and $200 plus in the north. Cattle futures have been unable to find support as box beef prices continue to decline with choice cuts down $1.61 with select cuts down $0.91. Cents. This morning we are seeing mixed futures for livestock. August live cattle up $0.02 cents at $1.19. October down 17 at 124.52. For feeders, August down 37 at 155.15. September down 25 at 157.52. In lean hogs, the August contract $1.20 higher at 106.20. October $1.02 higher at 92.05. In the outside markets, the Dow is up 235 points. The NASDAQ composite up 56. The S&P 500 up 23. The U.S. dollar index is trending lower. You're listening to A away. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes. Go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, a lot to go over with Todd Holtman, lead analyst for DTN. Todd, thanks for joining us. Uh, we start, of course, with the weather, and it looks like these patterns have 
I mean, they've been in place for quite some time now. We don't see much big change, right, in a lot of these areas. Uh, the dry areas are staying dry. Yeah, in fact, I was trying to think about what we'd be talking about today, Mike, because it, it is, it's a lot of the same theme over and over again. Uh, we still have a very hot and dry outlook for most of the central and western Corn Belt. The east even is going to be dry uh, the next week or two ahead, but protected by more moderate temperatures. So that's probably the big difference moving forward. In the west, we're going to see some very hot temperatures over the weekend and into next week. So let's, let's start breaking it down. A lot of talk right now, a lot of focus on the spring wheat crop uh, and how yeah. how much damage has been done there and how reduced that crop may be. Yes, and uh, I, I think it's beyond repair in a lot of places. I, I think there's probably no question about that. We, we see spring wheat trading a little bit lower here on Wednesday uh, with some possible chances of some rain in the extended forecast. I, I think that's uh, a little bit silly to think that that's going to help the crop much. It's it's in very, very tough shape, and, and the hot temperatures, we're going to see some triple digits this weekend in spring wheat territory. Uh, so it, it's just uh, it's, it's a, as bad as outlook as I can recall, and uh, according to the crop conditions going back to 1988. So it's tough, tough shape. Yeah, that's the the point here. I'm, as bad as it has been, it may be about to get worse. Yes. Uh, it, it's just hard to see what could miraculously revive this crop, even if it did get some rain in the next week and a half or two. Uh, I, I think it's kind of a foregone conclusion here, honestly. And I don't see uh, anything to change the expectation that we're going to have uh, much tighter than usual spring wheat supplies through winter. So I, I think we're going to have a long period ahead uh, in favor of uh, the producers that do have some spring wheat available. I think uh, commercials are going to really have to bid up this winter to get that out of your hands. Mm -hmm. Now let's look at corn and soybeans. Um, it's not unusual in any given year. You, you've got your areas of the uh, growing uh, Midwest, uh, you know, that are going to be down and other areas are going to be up. And overall, usually we wind up with a good crop. Uh, and couple that with the the stocks we've had on hand, uh, you know, not much concern about supply. But here we are now with a lot of the uh, area, especially in the West, that it will be down significantly, perhaps yeah. made up somewhat by uh, good places in the Eastern Corn Belt. But even at that, uh, with the reduced stocks, the tight supply we came into this with, it's a whole different ball game than what we're usually looking at at this time of year, right? Yes, and you hit it on the head. That is the big difference. It's not like we have a 2 billion bushel surplus of corn this year to help get us through some dry patches. Uh, and, and frankly, I think this year it's going to be very tough for eastern production to compensate for western losses. And one of the reasons I'm saying that is because we're just not seeing very quick improvement in the state of Minnesota. That's a big producer. Um, and uh, they're obviously uh, having a very tough situation here. Uh, in general, I thought it was interesting, the national good to excellent rating for corn is very similar to what it was in 2017. But as I went back and looked at the numbers, uh, Minnesota had a yield that year of 194 bushels, and they had a fantastic crop in 2017. This year, that's not going to be the case. It's uh, set up for a much tougher situation. 
And uh, without full participation from all the states, and especially the big producers like Minnesota, it's uh, going to be very difficult uh, to to come up with anything close to the 15 plus billion bushels that USDA is expecting on the balance sheet. Yeah, that I think you that really nailed it right there. We know there are some good crops. Uh, I live in an area in Illinois that has good crops right now. And we talked yeah. to the farmer yesterday in Ohio, and he says things are looking very good. He may have one of his best crops. So, but as you said, it's going to be hard for the good areas to overcome the loss in the down areas, and especially when you start to bring in parts of states like Minnesota and perhaps parts of Iowa, too. Yes, can't neglect Iowa. You're absolutely right. Still has some uh, extreme drought conditions uh, in Iowa. And uh, as as I see the forecast right now, there's just not much rain uh, for this pollinating crop the next two weeks. So it's uh, hard to see much good news right now. Okay, so then how do you see markets reacting to this as we move through the last half of summer and towards harvest? Yes, well, uh, as you look at the board even here today on Wednesday, we're getting some two-sided action. And I think partly balancing this, Mike, are concerns moving forward about demand. And one of the concerns that's cropping up that we didn't expect this year is that the cost of shipping corn and beans to China is much more expensive this year than it was last. At the start of this year, we could we could ship corn uh, from the Gulf to China for roughly a dollar a bushel. Now it's over two dollars a bushel, uh, so it's eating a bit into that uh, margin and incentive uh, for China to be an aggressive buyer. Now it still makes sense for China to buy, uh, and their corn prices slipped a little, and I think partly because it looks like they have a good crop expectation uh, this year. But they're trading near their lowest prices uh, in a year right now. Uh, so a couple of months out from harvest. So they have a better outlook for their crop. Uh, and along with that shipping cost, I think it makes a little more questionable, uh, will they be as big and aggressive of, of a buyer as they were a year ago? So far, the, the odds still point to yes, but I think there's a lot of doubts here. The cost of everything seems to be up considerably. <laughs> well, but yeah, that's the truth. And, and that's getting a lot of headlines. Yeah, and that's going to be a factor moving forward. Um, you know, it's one thing to see higher commodity prices, but what's not talked about as much is the input costs going up and the, the, the cost of uh, of growing that crop. All that goes up, too. Yes, and, and a lot of this still is related to coming out of the pandemic situation last year, uh, you know, trying to get labor back uh, where it's needed, uh, and uh, trying to get production going again, it's it's taken our whole economy quite a bit to a, a, adjust to the hit that it took last year, and there are some big transition costs here in the meantime of getting back to normal. Meanwhile, we watched what China's doing. We've talked before; they make these announcements. They're going to increase uh, food production, whether whatever crop they're going to talk about. But we've, as we've said before, it's one thing to make an announcement, another thing to actually do it. But we are seeing some yeah. things like in their, in their hog industry where they're changing some of the requirements or regulations on them, kind of opening things up. Uh, that's, those are the kind of things that actually could make a difference, couldn't they, in their domestic production? Yes. Well, uh, it, it does look like their pork production will be up this year again. It, it looks like their hog herd is getting back uh, near the pre-pandemic or pre-ASF level, I should say. 
uh, before they ran into that African swine fever problem. Uh, and, and the hog prices in China uh, tend to verify uh, that sort of data that's coming out. So it does look like pork production is getting back. The ASF concern has not totally gone away and probably won't in the next decade. We'll probably be talking about this off and on uh, for years to come. Uh, but the feed grain demand ought to be up. And the fact of the matter is feed grain demand in China is still outgrowing their ability to produce. And even with a $3 billion subsidy to try to encourage more corn production this year, uh, their, their corn production still is going to be up a little bit from a year ago but it's still relatively flat when you look back at the past five to six years. So they're, they're really not solving their long-term situation yet and still continue to be very uh, vulnerable and needy in terms of corn imports. Okay, so if you're a corn soybean farmer in the U.S. and it looks like you've got a decent crop, are you selling? Are you holding on? Because we just kind of painted a scenario where it sounds like uh, these prices could uh, stay strong right into and through harvest. Yes. Uh, well, right now I can tell you the, the cash prices are staying uh, well above the $6 mark for most areas across the Midwest. And that's a good price. And if you have certain cash needs, uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, raising the cash you need for a $6 corn price if that holds up at harvest time. Uh, in that scenario. Typically, we don't like to advise our customers to sell at harvest because that tends to be the low of the season. And uh, preferably, uh, if you can, we, we encourage you to hang on at least till January, get into the new tax year. And typically, there's a post-harvest bounce after that uh, October harvest period. So uh, that, that tends to be the first selling opportunity uh, we look for, and given the tight supplies that we expect to see again uh, this year, I think the market forces are still going to work in favor of uh, supporting that corn price very well through the winter months. Still a long ways to go, uh, and always reminded it's a long way from being in the bin yet, but uh, it's going to be right. uh, it's going to be. A tough, a close call on a lot of these crops, whether they're going to make it in some areas like out west, and can the good areas stay good to the finish line? We shall see. Todd, always good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you. DTN lead analyst Todd Holtman. Well, we've talked a lot about the very dry conditions in the western Corn Belt, one of those states hard hit this year, North Dakota. We will talk with a farmer in North Dakota and a past president of the National Corn Growers Association. Find out what conditions are like on Kevin Skunas' farm. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. 
you can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, the CEO of RCAF USA, Bill Bullard. Bill, the other issue that this administration is taking on, and USDA is going to have this investigation and seeking information on what to do with meat labels. Are you encouraged by what you're hearing and seeing so far from USDA on this? Well, we're certainly pleased that USDA is now interested in doing this. But the problem is, is the problem that USDA is addressing, and that is that uh, currently the government allows imported beef products to be unpackaged and repackaged and then USDA label placed on it. The reason that problem exists is because when Congress repealed the mandatory country of origin labeling law, they also repealed the provision that said all foreign meat passing through U.S. Customs and Border Protection must retain its foreign label through retail sale. So the real solution here is, again, Congress. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. A gentle breeze blows across your face as you take a refreshing sip of water, appreciating the stillness of another morning fishing on the lake. The distant gurgle of a stream reminds you of days spent playing in the creek, the cool, clear water rushing between your toes. You love this time with nature, the feeling of putting everything on hold to connect with the world around you. Now, imagine it's all gone. No fish, no lake, no water. One of life's most vital resources, irreplaceably depleted. Time is running out to protect fresh water, and without our love, it can and will disappear. It's our choice. Love it or lose it. 
help protect our fresh water. Visit World Wildlife Fund at wwf.org love. Adams on Agriculture. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons of issues important to you, cutting through the spin to get to the heart of a topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you guests important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, we continue our crop watch as we check in with farmers in different parts of the country and uh, get an update on conditions. We've talked a lot about North Dakota. Joining us now, North Dakota farmer, past president of the National Corn Growers Association, Kevin Skunas. Kevin, good to talk with you again. How have you been? Hey, Mike. Uh, great to talk to you. I've been, been very good. Uh, glad to be on your show today. Yeah, it's good to talk to you again. All right, so we keep hearing about how dry it has been and is in North Dakota. What's it like on your farm? Well, so in our area, I'm uh, 30 miles northwest of uh, Fargo in the eastern part of the state. We have had some just-in-time rains on a lot of our stuff here, so um, we're our, we're sitting okay on, on, on some of our things, but we're working with about three and a half inches to eight inches of rain for the season. So those those fields out there that got missed by the thunderstorms that are working on three and a half, uh, they're looking, you know, not so great right now. Um, you know, some of the some of the corn and soybeans uh, in, in better spots where it got the rain switch, it varies. It varies greatly, Mike, and it it kind of depends on you know if it got a good start. We had a lot of prevent plant uh, last year in North Dakota. We had quite a bit on our farm, so the prevent plant acres you know look better than than what was cropped last year so it's really variable probably from average to pretty poor i think so you're maybe in better shape than some others in north dakota uh, you're getting enough rain to get by but that's the key you don't have much margin for error uh you don't have much margin for missing a rain moving forward do you there there certainly isn't you know every every year it seems like we've always said in our area we're we're two weeks away from a drought, and we've had um, we've had a lot of a lot of people who are three weeks into that. You know, you go a little bit west of us um, in in different spots. Um, you know, west of Bismarck, southwest of Bismarck, and and it's dry. They haven't gotten any rain. They will probably not harvest any of their wheat. Uh, any corn, you know, might be chopped. Probably probably not. Some of it won't be for grain out there. So it's 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 so variable. You know, you can have you know two two miles away, you got a thunderstorm, and two miles from here, you, you know, you got nothing. So it it really depends on uh, who lucked out and got the rain. What about the temperatures? Have you been very excessively hot or unusually hot for your state? Well, I, I don't know if we've been unusually hot, but we have had a we have had a spot. You know that we've probably been in the um, you know mid mid eighties to mid nineties, which isn't over the course of my career un, unusual. But we, 
have not had that hot weather, you know, the last several years. But it is July and August, and it, it can get that hot, and it has been a little bit. The humidity the last few days has been a little higher, so it's uh, you know, a little tougher if you're working in the shop or hauling corn out. Uh, uh, he's sweating a little bit more, but because we did earlier in the, in the season had had some uh, high temperatures, but the humidity was quite low, so it makes a makes a big difference. And I think going forward, if we can catch some timely rains, uh, you know there will be guys who will have a have a decent crop, and like I said, there will be guys who are going to rely on some crop insurance again this year. What about disease, insects, uh, anything out of the ordinary this year? Well, earlier when we were spraying beans, the uh, grasshoppers were pretty thick in the in the ditches. They they haven't seemed to to move out of the ditches too much. They got a little bit. Uh, we were talking um, about ten days ago. Our agronomists were, you know, wanting us to look for spider mites in the in the soybeans. Haven't seen any uh, white mold uh, show up in any of the fields because we've been been dry enough. And actually, the the soybeans haven't been really tall enough to cover up yet for for a white mold problem but uh corn seems to be holding in pretty good uh well of course uh it'll start pollinating here shortly so we'll have to see if we can you know keep the temperatures under 90 degrees which will really help with pollination so it's uh, it's the same old thing we'll see what mother nature will handle us in the next uh, month or so Obviously not your first rodeo, not your first cropping season. You've seen the ups and downs. How would you compare this one to some of the uh, challenging years in the past? Well, it uh, it certainly has has looked like, um, you know, our, our, our two worst years ever in North Dakota for, for our farm were in 1980 and 1988 when it just really never rained. It seems like if you, if you can get a drawn-out spot or two in your field, you know, it seems like you probably have a little better crop. You just can't do anything if it doesn't rain. And when we had corn out here and there's still spots that aren't going to recover, you know, that was uh, pineappling up in the afternoon and some rain will help. But this has been very challenging. And I think for some of the younger growers, this might be one of their one of their worst years ever. I think it's on our farm. Um, you know, we got a, a decent rain about three days ago. So I'm I'm optimistic to have a have an um, average to a little bit below average year, and and that that comes with the territory. Uh, you know, obviously we're up over the last uh, several months in the commodity prices, so you know maybe maybe things will work out again, and we'll do it again next year. Yeah, getting that last rain you got helps you be a little more optimistic, right? Oh, it obviously is. We were we were in a very hot and dry since the fourth of July, and. It just made a huge difference uh, to get, you know, maybe half inch to an inch uh, of rain across here. Uh, the sun hasn't been out so much. We've, of course, we've got drifting across here. We've got the smoke coming from the uh, forest fires, and it's made it a little hazy. So the sun hasn't been as bright the last few days, which helps a lot, too, uh, you know, holding some of that moisture down. So, Well, Kevin, it's sure good to talk with you again, and uh, we'll check in again closer to harvest and to get another update from you, okay? That'd be great, Mike. Thanks. Appreciate your show. All right. Thank you. Take care. Kevin Skunas, North Dakota farmer, past president of the National Corn Growers Association. With that, we'll wrap it up for today. Tomorrow, we'll take a closer look at the ag labor issue, more on the markets, and we'll get some more perspective uh, on this uh, carbon 
border tax proposal and what impact that could have on agriculture. Thanks again for joining us today. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.